So we're taking a break, a little bit of a break from our study of Ephesians to get into this Advent season for the next few weeks. So today we're going to be spending a lot of time in Genesis, actually. Uh, so you can open the, your Bibles to the book of Genesis, and we'll, uh, we'll get there eventually. Let me ask you a question, though. Have you ever been in a place that has absolute darkness, where you can't literally see your hand in front of your face if it was that close? It's terrifying. There's a cave uh, in southern Lancaster County called the Wind Cave. Anyone been there other than my family? Uh, it's, it's down near uh, the Susquehanna River in the southern end. And after about a 15-minute hike into the woods, uh, there's this cave. You wouldn't, there's nothing that marks it off, so you wouldn't know unless someone who'd been there before brought you. Um, but you can walk into this cave, and within about 25 steps and the turn of one corner, you are in complete darkness. If you didn't have a flashlight, you'd be toast. Uh, in fact, they've got a string that goes the whole journey down, and it goes into some deep caverns. It's wonderful if you've got a flashlight. But it is complete darkness. You cannot see your hand in front of your face. Sometimes to freak our kids out, we would turn the lights off when we were in there. There have been nights that I have uh, spent uh, camping or when we were living uh, overseas in Tanzania that were complete darkness. Absolutely, you could not see. I mean, if you tried to walk outside, you would just be falling all over yourself because you wouldn't know where you were going. Darkness is disorienting. Darkness is anxiety-producing. And there's only one remedy for darkness, and that is light. There is nothing like light in the darkness to calm the soul. And when light comes, it is the most gravitational thing on the planet. When you are in total darkness and you've been there and your soul is anxious and you see light like a moth to a lamp, you head for it. Because that is where Hope is found. Well, today we are celebrating with Christians the light of Advent. Advent is all about God bringing light into this world. It's about Jesus Christ, the light of the world, coming into the darkness. And so, as we start our Advent season, I want to light the first candle. Now, I hope that you've gotten the Advent devotional that we've given out. Uh, our brother Bill Neff created this, and I hope that you will go through it. But if you, and if you do, there is a, a part as you follow through where you have your own Advent candle at home. 
If you don't have one of those, contact me and I will make sure that you have one. So Advent is all about bringing light. But I want to make sure that you know that Advent really is not about Bethlehem. And Advent's really not about what happened 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. It doesn't start in a manger. God's plan for Advent started way before Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. And it involves some very unlikely characters, which we're going to see. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, uh, we are told, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void. It was chaotic. There was darkness over it. And the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. But God said, let there be light. And into the chaos and anxiety of darkness, hope came in creation. Now John 1, the apostle, writing of Jesus Christ, says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, so Jesus was there at creation, and all things were made through him. But John says about Jesus that in him was life, and the life was the light of men. You see, it's Jesus Christ and his creative work that brought light into the chaos. But, and the created world, as we read in the book of Genesis, was beautiful, more beautiful than anything that you and I have ever experienced. I mean, we love going out. We love uh, taking summer vacations to beautiful places. We've been to southern Utah. We've been to Colorado. And uh, I mean, we do this because in those places, you begin to see God's magnificence. We were, Brother Tim, you and I were looking at pictures of Alaska and Mount McKinley uh, just last week, and uh, how fantastic it is, this world that God has created for his glory, and we get to enter into the joy of that, but we don't get to experience it like it was intended to be experienced. It was much more beautiful at the beginning, more beautiful than anything we've ever experienced, and why is it that we have such a tampered down view of the world that God created, the world that God said this is good. And the reason is, is because the world that we know has been significantly affected by sin. Not just humans have been affected by sin, but the, the actual world that we live in has been cursed. You see, our first parents in a perfect world world and in a perfect environment, our first parents rebelled against God and his commands. He, they defied his commands. And as I've thought about this, I've actually thought how hard it would be to overstate how devastating that act was. How devastating it was when the first rebellion happened. Because prior to it, human relationships were known by trust and honor of one another. Prior to that first act of rebellion, mankind walked with God in closeness and in fulfillment. 
prior to the sin that Adam and Eve committed, work was satisfying and it wasn't burdensome. Creation was free and productive and life abounded everywhere. But it was into this paradise that a truth was twisted and a lie was told and believed. And the lie was, you shall not die. If you do what God forbids, you're not going to die. Actually, you're going to become like God. The lie was that there's something better than being in perfect communion with God. There's something better than following his ways. There's really not a consequence for doing things your way. God's holding back. The truth that was twisted was that God knows that you will be like God. In the day that you eat it, God knows you're going to become like him. And it was twisted because it was as if God was holding out. And the reason I say that that's a truth that got twisted is because after the fall and you see the Trinity discussing this among themselves, they actually say they, they have become like us, knowing good and evil. They Humans, for the first time, knew evil. They knew good before that because that's what God had assigned to them, only good. What God had withheld was evil. And in a twisted way, our first parents were convinced that it would be better to disobey God than to live in ignorance of evil. How many people have made that same choice throughout their lives? It would be better to disobey God than to be ignorant of this kind of evil. Have you ever done something and after experiencing the consequences said, boy, if I'd have known that it was going to turn out like this, I would never have done that. I have. Well, certainly our first parents had no idea what was going to be the consequence for their simple act in their mind of just eating from a tree that had been forbidden of them. But since that very moment, Darkness has replaced light. Darkness has replaced the light. Human relationships are now filled with suspect and selfishness. Relationship with God is not inevitable. If it is existent, oftentimes it is shallow and distant. Work can be very burdensome, and creation, we are told, is bound. 
filled with fear, decay, chaos, and pain, and death. All of these, and of course plenty of others, uh, all you have to do is read the newspaper. All of these are a result of human rebellion, and sin has cast us into darkness. It is into this darkness that Advent, the light of Advent, makes sense. Unless we acknowledge the darkness of sin, Advent means very little. You see, it is into this darkness, the darkness of sin, the darkness of rebellion, the darkness of consequences under before a holy God, it is into this darkness that the light of God shines brightest. Like in a, in a wind cave where there is total darkness, when you see a flicker of light, you know there is hope. It is into the darkness of this world that the light of God shines brightest. And that light comes first as a promise, a promise of God. Let me ask you a question. Why is a promise powerful? Think of, think of a promise that you have heard or someone has told you or you've believed. Why is it so powerful? Why does it have the ability to change your course? I remember the very first, the, the very first promise that I can remember hearing. Two years old. It's my earliest memory. I was with my father. We lived across the street from our community pool. It was winter. Uh, he was a contractor, and he had been asked uh, to go over, and I, I, don't, I don't know what he had been asked to do. I guess to fix the pool, but the pool had been emptied. And uh, they were talking to one another, and as young fathers do, uh, he, young mom's a little bit better at this, but young fathers get distracted. He lost sight of his two-year-old, who literally walked to the edge of the deep end, which was empty, and walked right off the side. Fell 10 feet as a two-year-old into an empty pool. It wasn't quite empty, it had six inches of water. My earliest memory, you can probably imagine why now, but I remember looking up and I remember my dad looking over the edge and my dad saying, I'm coming, son. I'm coming. And then he, and then he disappeared. And the next thing I knew, he was running he went in the shallow end. He went the, he went the reasonable way. He didn't just jump 10 feet. That promise was powerful to a two-year-old. And the reason it's powerful is because the power of a promise is tied to the character of the person making the promise. You see, my dad was coming because I knew my dad. He wouldn't break the promise. 
Not many children in the room here, but maybe there are some watching. Kids, this is why it's so important to always tell the truth, because your character and your truth-telling will be tied to your character and whether people will believe you sometimes for the rest of your life. So the power of a promise is tied to the character of the one making the promise. Well, Scripture tells us that God cannot lie. He cannot, he will not, and he does not tell lies. Titus chapter 1 verse 2 says that in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 18 says, it is impossible for God to lie. Now what's interesting is that in the Genesis account, it is that very faithful character of God that Satan uses to convince, no, I'm sorry, Satan uses the faithfulness of God to keep his promises in order to bring darkness. Satan knew that when God said, you will die if you eat it, that God was going to keep that promise. That was the first promise. In the day you eat it, you will die, surely. And that spiritual death, separation from God, is what occurred. And Satan used that when he tempted Eve and Adam to disobey God. Satan wanted to steal, kill, and destroy from the very beginning. And because God is holy and good and he's trustworthy and faithful, he cannot turn a blind eye to our rebellion because he is faithful to keep his promises. Satan, I'm sure, not knowing the kindness and grace and love of God, only assumed that there would be death. From that point on, there would be only death. But that wasn't the only promise that God gave. You see, right on the heels of our rebellion, God's loving kindness is demonstrated in the promise that he made. And this promise was actually in his speaking to the serpent. Genesis 3.15 God promises, says, I will put enmity, that means hostility, between you, he's not speaking so much to the snake as he is to the spirit within the snake, that is Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her, your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What's God talking about there? This is called... The Proto-Evangelicum. This is the first acknowledgement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Into a world which was darkened more than Adam and Eve knew, God speaks the first light of promise. A man would be born that one day would be attacked by Satan who would strike his heel, but that man would deal a death blow to Satan, crushing his head. Now Eve, 
who, with her husband, had just rebelled against God, began to be tempted. Well, as we know, because of sin, it began to ruin everything. It began to ruin the relationship between husband and wife. It certainly cut off relationship between God and the humans that existed. But what I find interesting is that Eve began to want to fast-track the fulfillment of this promise. And we all do that. We all want God to keep his promises on our timetable. If you look in Genesis chapter 4, it appears there that Eve seems to assume when she gives birth to Cain that God is going to fulfill his promise now. I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. God promised that it was going to be my offspring that was going to bruise the serpent's head. Here's a man. He's my firstborn son. Now this is going to be taken care of. Well, God doesn't work on our schedule. We should know that by now. Obviously, God's will, as hard as this is to contemplate, is to allow humanity to experience the devastation that rebellion brings. If it weren't, he would certainly take us out of it. But there is something in the experience of the devastation that sin brings that causes us to lose our confidence in this world. And when we lose our confidence in this world, where else do we have to turn? We have to turn to something besides this world. The very child that Eve thought might have been God's remedy on her fast-track way of redemption. That very child winds up growing up and killing his own brother out of jealousy because God had accepted Abel's sacrifice offered in faith and not his own. The next eight chapters of the book of Genesis are filled with stories of how the darkness of sin continues to deepen, filled with a great worldwide flood, filled with a, a, a people that are on this great plain building a tower, trying to reach heaven in rebellion to God, trying to make a name for themselves. And in spite of God's powerful intervention in each time, there was no way of stopping the darkness. And I think that's something we need to acknowledge. There is nothing that we can do, ultimately, to stop the darkness in this world. There is nothing humans can do to stop the darkness and the effects of sin. It's a desperate condition, and yet it's reality. But it is into that reality that God gives another promise. 
And the promise demonstrates that God is not going to be denied. God continues to pursue a people for himself, a bride for himself. So Genesis chapter 12, we read about a man named Abram who was sinful and rebellious just like us. He was from Ur of the Chaldees. He most likely was a, a, a worshiper of other gods, Zoroastrian most likely. And it is to this man in Genesis chapter 12 that God makes a promise. And it says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, this last sentence is important, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The promise of God to Abram was fourfold. The first was God's presence. God would do these things because God was present with Abraham. Second was that God would give him a land, which was representative in that day of a place of rest. If you didn't have land back in that day, you were always a nomad and you were moving place to place. What people wanted was a land and God was calling this man to leave his the land that he knew, and to go to another place that God would show him. It was a promise. It wasn't fulfilled yet, so he had to trust. The third was that he would make him a nation, that he would make him and his wife, old as they were, in a nation. What he's talking about there is not the things we think of today as a nation. It's a family. It was a it was, a, it was a growing family that would be connected biologically to one another. He, and it, we see that as we go through the Old Testament becoming the nation of Israel. But it was just one large extended family that was to be related to God. And then the fourth promise that God made to Abram was to be a blessing. And this blessing would be both personal, I will bless you, Abram, but it was also to be communal and is to be one that would be, uh, this blessing would be, extend to others depending on how they related to Abram. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who don't honor you, I will dishonor. But beyond that, he says, in you, Abram, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's a promise. All the families of the earth would be blessed in connection to Abram. So into the darkness of human rebellion, into the darkness of people trying to fix their condition by themselves. This is, see, this is the problem of Genesis 4 to 11 is that everybody knew there was a problem. They were just trying to fix it on their own terms. And it is into that darkness that God lights another flame of promise. Now, whenever there's a promise, there's a choice. What was Abraham going to do? Promise is a call to evaluate the character of the one making that promise. Do I really leave my father's house? Do I really leave my country, the only place I've ever known? 
Because the fulfillment of the promise is not yet. It's future. That's the nature of promise. Once it's fulfilled, it's no longer a promise. So you have to trust that the promiser is good for it. Is God good to keep his promise? That's the question. And as we go through Abraham's life, we, what we see is that he chooses to trust. Sometimes against all odds, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, we are told that as an old man, when it was literally not going to be possible for he and his wife to have children, God told him to look into the sky and count the number if he could. And he said, this is how big your family is going to be. This is how many offspring that you are going to come through your, I mean, impossible. And it says, Abram believed God, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. When the promise of God comes, it does not matter how outlandish it seems. The choice is, will I believe or will I not? This promise of blessing to the entire world was reiterated to Abraham later on in his life in Genesis chapter 22, verse 18. And then it was reiterated to his son and his grandson. Isaac received the same promise of a blessing, that the blessing would come through their family. Isaac in chapter 26, verse 4, and then Jacob in chapter 28, verse 14. Now, regrettably, you read the scriptures in the Old Testament. Oftentimes, the family, which continued to grow, they didn't always trust that God would be faithful. So what do you do when you don't, when, when you don't think that God is going to be faithful to his promise? What are you left with? You're left with trying to figure out how to solve your problem your own way. And the scripture is filled with examples of how disastrous that turns out. When you try to solve your spiritual soul problems in your own strength and in your own way, it is disastrous. And the scriptures are filled with examples of it. So let me conclude. And Chris, you can come on up and we're going to re-sing that last song that we just learned. What is Advent all about? What is Advent all about? Advent is about bringing light into the darkness. That's why we light candles. Advent is about believing the promises of God. Particularly the promise that God would bring a man to crush the serpent's head. Advent is about God's plan to count sinful people like Abraham and like you and I as righteous. I 
want you to think about that. God's plan is to count sinful people as righteous people. That doesn't mean God's plan is to convince you to clean up your life so that you have such wonderful character that God eventually is won over and says, I want that one. It is God's plan to reveal to sinful people how utterly devoid of righteousness they are because of their sin of mind, of heart, of speech, of action, that eventually they become so despondent of themselves that they look to God in mercy and said, can anything be done? To which the promise of God says, yes, I have a man who I'm sending, I have sent to crush the work of the serpent. His name is Jesus. Advent is about setting God's people free once and for all from the sin that has kept them bound. And ultimately, Advent is about God's glory. It's about the glory of God expanding to all the earth so that people from every tribe, tongue, language, nation, people of all skin color, people of all ethnicities, people of all economic backgrounds, people, it doesn't matter who they are when they become aware of how devoid they are of their own righteousness and yet there is a way to be righteous by faith to believe the promises that God has made, just like Abraham who believed God and God counted his righteousness. And God is inviting those of us who have received that already to join him in mission and telling the world. Advent is about Jesus because all the promises of God are yes in Christ. All the promises are yes, and we give our amen to God through Christ. As we prepare to sing this song about being set free and no longer being a slave, I want to remind you, wherever you're at, whether you're here or at home, God's timetable is not subject to ours. Trust him. We must be people that give up our own timetable. And we must be people who refuse to take matters into our own hands. And we must be people who choose to believe that he is faithful to his promises. Now as we sing this song, let's be reminded that he is the one who set us free in Christ.